A 40-year-old woman sits quietly on the witness stand. She begins to speak, and a team of six attorneys jumps to their feet to object. When things quiet down, she begins to speak again. Once more, the attorneys interrupt her. Elizabeth Friedman is an expert witness. Sitting across from her in the courtroom are a group of over 20 members of the mafia, including the brother of Al Capone. She's been asked to testify on behalf of the U.S. government, and she is here to reveal how she broke the mafia's code. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. So I think the first question we should ask ourselves is, how does a woman in the 1930s fall into a career in code-breaking? So let's remember that this is a time when economic depression had wiped out job opportunities for a huge segment of the population. And then on top of that, a very small pool of that work was even open to women. Well, as we're about to see, Elizabeth Friedman was a perfect example of a uniquely intelligent person being in the right place at the right time to ultimately change the course of history. Elizabeth grew up in a time when code-breaking was essentially a non-entity to most people. Uh, She grew up in a small town in Indiana, where, like most women at the time, the future that was presented to her was essentially to get married and have children. But from a fairly young age, Elizabeth had kind of rejected the idea of an ordinary life. So when Elizabeth finished school, she wanted to go to college, but of course, she didn't have her own money to pay for it. And her father, who was a Civil War veteran, was against further education, especially for women. Somehow, Elizabeth talked him into lending her the money, but he would only agree if she would pay him back at an interest rate of 6%. So in 1913, Elizabeth went to college and she studied Greek and English literature. She loved art and philosophy and poetry, and Tennyson and Shakespeare were among her favorite writers. And that love of Shakespeare would take her down an unexpected path. So when Elizabeth graduated in 1915, there really weren't a whole lot of professional doors open to her. She was interested in work related to research or literature, but many colleges and universities simply weren't open to women. And even if they were, most of the jobs in academia wouldn't be. To paint a picture for you, the year she graduated, less than 1,000 American women were given master's degrees, and less than 100 women were given PhDs, and 90% of all college professors were men. Since her academic prospects were not looking great, she took one of the only jobs that were available to educated women at that time. She became a teacher, but she didn't end up liking the job, and she quit after just a year. And this is where things get interesting. Of course, she still needed a job, so she went to Chicago in June of 1916 to try her luck at getting a job there. But after a disappointing week with no results, she decided to return home. But she took the opportunity on her last day in the city to indulge her love of Shakespeare. And she went to the Newberry Library to see a display of a rare copy of Shakespeare's first folio. 
So this folio was the first printed collection of Shakespeare's plays that was published seven years after his death in 1623. And when Elizabeth approached the folio, she was mesmerized. And her fixation on the folio drew the attention of one of the librarians. So the librarian walked over to Elizabeth and they struck up a conversation. At some point, Elizabeth mentioned that she was looking for a job, preferably related to literature or research. So the librarian called a wealthy man named George Fabian. Fabian came to the library often to look at the folio, and apparently he was looking for an assistant to help him with some sort of secret project related to messages hidden within Shakespeare's works. So this idea had understandably piqued Elizabeth's interest, and Fabian arrived at the library soon after. Fabian was a tall, larger-than-life, eccentric man. Soon after introducing himself, he asked Elizabeth if she would like to go to Riverbank, which was his massive estate in Geneva, Illinois, and spend the night with him. Elizabeth was, of course, taken aback by this completely inappropriate question, and trying to find any graceful way to reject his offer, she protested that she didn't have a change of clothes. But he was having none of that. He told her that he would lend her some clothes, and then grabbed her arm, led her to his car that was waiting outside the library, and took her to the train station. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be incredibly uncomfortable in this situation, and Elizabeth was too. She couldn't believe that she was hopping on a train with this man. But it turned out that this chance encounter would change the course of her entire life. Elizabeth soon found that on Fabian's 350-acre estate, he allocated space and resources for various scientific studies. So you can look at this like a giant amusement park for scientists. Fabian sponsored projects related to things like acoustics and bombs and genetics, and what he wanted Elizabeth to do there was to help prove a theory that would essentially rewrite the history of English literature. The theory was that Sir Francis Bacon, who was a philosopher and scientist in the 1600s, was actually William Shakespeare, and that he had written a code into his works that proved his identity as the writer. The idea was that Shakespeare's first folio contained printed letters that were slightly different than the others. They might be a little bit larger or wider than the others, or they might have had an extra tail on the end. According to this theory, those unique letters were part of a coded message within the overall text. After spending a couple of days touring the estate and speaking to the scientists and thinkers who worked on various projects there, Elizabeth accepted the position. She would be working with Elizabeth Wells Gallup. So Mrs. Gallup was absolutely convinced that Francis Bacon was Shakespeare. And in order for Elizabeth to help Mrs. Gallup prove this, Elizabeth would need to learn Bacon's method for encoding messages. Okay, now let's take a moment to jump into a code-breaking classroom to talk about codes and ciphers. So we in the general public may use the term codes and ciphers interchangeably. In fact, I may interchange them in this podcast at times, which isn't exactly ideal. But these two terms are getting at the same concept, a message that has been disguised so that only an intended recipient can understand it. However, there actually is a difference between the two. So a code is when a word or phrase is replaced with a different word or phrase. It might read like a normal, plain text and be taken at face value if you didn't know that there was actually a coded message in there. For example, a well-known phrase that many of us will have heard is, The eagle has landed. This phrase is a code. 
in the context of military operations, whoever is uttering this phrase is most likely not letting their friend know that they just saw a bald eagle land in a tree. They could be referring to a plane landing behind enemy lines, a paratrooper dropping down at the targeted landing point, or a ship arriving at its destination. The point is that they and their intended recipient know what this phrase is about, and you and I don't. A cipher, on the other hand, is when individual letters or groups of letters are changed through some process or algorithm into other letters, numbers, or symbols. These messages tend to be unreadable and can only be found out through specific methods of code breaking. So in order to decipher the message within the Shakespeare folio, Elizabeth would have to learn methods to break both codes and ciphers. In one method, she learned that all letters of the alphabet can be represented by writing different combinations of the letters A and B in groups of five. For example, within this particular enciphering method, the letter A is represented by writing A-A-A-A-A, so five A's. The letter B is represented by writing A-A-A-A-B, so four A's and one B, and so on. So, fun fact, this type of binary coding is exactly the type of coding that we use today in computers. And Sir Francis Bacon came up with this in 1623. So if you were feeling like a little bit of an underachiever today, I'm so sorry to pile on. The second of Bacon's methods that Elizabeth learned was to identify what's called biformed letters. Now, these biformed letters are what Mrs. Gallup believed that Bacon had hidden within Shakespeare's texts. Biformed alphabets are two alphabets with letters in slightly different shapes, so a regular alphabet and a slightly abnormal alphabet, where the coded messages were hidden within a plain text. Once Mrs. Gallup identified which alphabet a group of letters may be from, she would then use Bacon's key, which would tell her that A-A-A-B-A was the letter C, for example, to write one letter of the final message. So as you can tell, this work was ridiculously tedious and time-consuming. Okay, so we can now step out of our code-breaking classroom and take a deep breath. Before she came to Riverbank, Elizabeth had never learned anything about codes or ciphers, but she was a quick learner, and she showed her ability to sit patiently for hours, looking through a magnifying glass for those tiny details that would provide evidence to back up Mrs. Gallup's quest for these hidden messages. Day in and day out, she pored over copies of the text, tracking the most minute differences in letters, then converting those differently shaped letters to those binary combinations of A and B to then decipher what they hoped would be this seismic revelation for the history of English literature. Early on at her time at Riverbank, Elizabeth met a man named William Friedman. William was a geneticist working on a separate project, but he had been brought in to the Shakespeare Project as a photographer. He started making photo enlargements of pages in old books that Elizabeth and Mrs. Gallup needed to analyze. And Elizabeth and William became friends, and she taught him everything she knew about codes and ciphers. And that act would eventually make them the most potent and influential pair of code breakers the U.S. has ever seen. Not to mention a ridiculously cute married couple who sent Christmas cards to their friends and family in code. I am not kidding. And had incredible mutual respect. They worked together on numerous projects and books over the years, and William would write beautiful love letters to Elizabeth throughout their lives. But I digress. 
Over the course of their time at Riverbank, Elizabeth and William not only never found conclusive proof of Mrs. Gallup's theory, but they actually became convinced that the theory was unfounded. Talk about an awkward work environment. Years later, it was proven that in reality, the different shapes and sizes of the letters in Shakespeare's folio were actually caused completely at random, when the typeface was set by hand. I honestly really can't help but feel so bad for Mrs. Gallup after she spent so many years poring over those texts. But this foray into what ultimately was a conspiracy theory wasn't a waste of time. This experience not only taught Elizabeth the basics of code breaking, but also heightened her frankly incredible ability to identify patterns where no one else might see them. And it turned out that she had a particular aptitude for this work and that this misguided probe into Shakespeare actually cultivated a brilliant mind for a far bigger task ahead, which was breaking codes for the U.S. military during World War I. So have you ever tried directing an orchestra over the phone? Yeah, didn't think so. But unfortunately, that's pretty much what World War I was like for military leadership. In war, communication can make or break you, as I'm sure you can imagine. And if you're the one in command, you need to relay orders and information about troop movements and enemy strengths and weaknesses. You've also got to tell your troops where to be and when to be there. If the lines of communication are broken, an army can be absolutely paralyzed. But if lines of communication are intercepted or tapped by the enemy, the consequences could be even worse. From the onset of World War I in 1914, the British, German, and Russian military were using signals intelligence, so that's radio, telegraphs, and telephones, to relay information. More specifically, radio was generally used for long-distance messages, telegraphs were used to send messages from command headquarters to the front, and field telephones were used to communicate among units in the trenches and battlefields. But all of these three communication methods had one really important thing in common. They were ripe for interception by the enemy. In all of these cases, messages sent by Morse code or by voice could be tapped into by connecting to either a cable or a radio frequency. As I'm sure you're aware, letting your enemy know where you are planning to be at a given time, what kind of artillery you have, or what high-level diplomatic communications you're engaged in with other countries could have devastating effects. So this is where codes and ciphers came in. Routinely, the actors in World War I began sending messages in code to protect their information from enemy eavesdroppers. Before sending information over radio waves or telegraph cables, the messages would first be encoded, then relayed via Morse code. The intended recipient would typically have what's called a code book, which held the key to that code. Using the code book, the recipient could break down the code and get the real meaning of the message. But to the unintended listener, the message would just sound like gibberish. Until code breakers started methodically working their magic on intercepted messages. And the significance of the information that could be gleaned from those intercepted messages cannot be understated. In fact, it was actually an intercepted telegram that was the final push for the United States to enter World War I in the first place. And if I'm being honest, the telegram actually reminded me of those mean notes that teenagers send to each other when they're talking about someone they've excluded from their group. So here's the gossip. The telegram was sent by the German foreign minister to a diplomatic contact in Mexico. He suggested an alliance between the two countries and requested that the Mexican government instigate an attack on the United States. 
In return, Mexico would be given back Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, which Mexico had lost just 70 years before. And they also included little checkboxes at the end of the message labeled yes or no. Just kidding. Soon after the telegram was intercepted, the British presented the message to the United States government, and they declared war on Germany soon afterward. Then came the stark realization that the U.S. military was leaps and bounds behind both its allies and enemies in code-breaking. No code-breaking agency of any kind existed in the U.S. military at that time. Apparently seeing the writing on the wall, George Fabian actually reached out to the U.S. military, explaining that if they needed any help with code-breaking, he had resources to offer them. Now, because Elizabeth and William's incredibly rare skills were now desperately needed, the military reluctantly agreed, and Elizabeth was put in charge of the United States' first code-breaking unit. The War, Navy, State, and Justice Departments began sending their messages to Elizabeth and William to decipher. But unfortunately, breaking down those non-existent codes in Shakespeare hadn't exactly prepared them for the onslaught of military communications that came their way. Elizabeth and William began reading anything they could find on code breaking, and then began honing in on methods that might be more applicable to military communications. To give you some context, let's jump back into our code breaking classroom for a second. So, at a very basic level, there are two different categories of ciphers, transposition and substitution. A transposition cipher rearranges letters into a new and initially unreadable order, while a substitution cipher actually substitutes one letter for another. Both categories of ciphers can be solved using a variety of methods, but a core method that Elizabeth and William studied up on was frequency analysis, which basically leads you to cracking a code by identifying the most frequently used letters in the language the message is written in and comparing them with the letters used most often in a given message. For example, the letter E is the most commonly used letter in the English language. Fun fact, right? The most frequently used two-letter group is TH, and the most frequently used three-letter group is THE. So if they saw a message with an overwhelming amount of X's, XY's, and XYZ's, they might have hypothesized that X is T, XY is TH, and XYZ is THE. Then a potential meaning could be worked out from there. Moving forward, Elizabeth and William began inventing their own code-breaking methods based on mathematical principles. Code-breaking was no longer seen as a job for linguists with decent mathematical aptitudes. It was becoming a mathematical science. Okay, our second code-breaking class has ended. And exhale. So for the first eight months of World War I, Elizabeth, William, and their team broke all of the messages for the U.S. military and Department of Justice. And by the end of the war, they were two of the most experienced and respected codebreakers in the United States. When the war ended, Elizabeth and William were both offered jobs with the Army Signal Corps to develop new cipher machines. Cipher machines were the new horizon for both code making and code breaking, and the United States would need to stay on top of this technology to remain a relevant actor in cryptology. So let's talk about something. Elizabeth had taught William how to break codes and ciphers, but the salary the U.S. government offered her was half of what William would earn. Can you hear that I'm not excited about this? And unfortunately, this income disparity would always exist between the two of them. This is not to say that William didn't sing his wife's praises or that it wasn't clear that Elizabeth was a code-breaking rock star. 
But Elizabeth's seismic breakthroughs in the field would generally be overshadowed by William's achievements. Between the two of them, they consider themselves to be intellectual equals, and William would forever praise his wife's brilliance. But William would receive much-deserved awards and have buildings named after him, while Elizabeth's profound contributions would remain in the shadows for decades. A year after accepting the position with the Army Signal Corps, Elizabeth took a break from code-breaking. She and William had gotten married in 1917, and she gave birth to a daughter in 1923 and a son not long after. She lived a relatively quiet life as a wife and a mother for a couple of years until one day in 1925, a Coast Guard officer knocked on her door. The Coast Guard had a little problem. Because in January of 1920, the law of prohibition, which forbade the manufacture, sale, or transportation of liquor, went into effect. While the law didn't actually prohibit people from drinking alcohol, it essentially cut off the supply chain. But just because a law prevented people from accessing liquor freely didn't mean that there wasn't a demand for it. And this continued demand for liquor, of course, blew the door wide open for organized crime to step in and provide booze to a thirsty public. Liquor entered the United States through these incredibly intricate supply networks that were built by mobsters like Al Capone. These networks encompassed the entire process from manufacturers to smuggling the alcohol into the country and finally to distributing the supply to nightclubs and speakeasies. But the smuggling part is where Elizabeth came in. Huge quantities of liquor were gathered from manufacturers in Canada, Mexico, and overseas, then stored on enormous boats off the coast of the United States. One by one, rum runners would approach the ship in small boats, load up their supply of liquor, and then take it to a designated drop-off point on the U.S. coast. So it was the Coast Guard's responsibility to prevent this alcohol from coming in by sea. But they had only 200 boats to patrol 5,000 miles of coastline, which was a drop in the bucket compared to the crime syndicate's bottomless resources. And as if the Coast Guard didn't have enough to worry about, the rum runners had started to coordinate pickups and drop-offs using shortwave radios and really sophisticated codes in order to throw the Coast Guard or any other authority off their scent. Hundreds of encoded messages had been intercepted by the Coast Guard, but there was no one capable of deciphering them. Enter Elizabeth, cape flapping in the wind. When that Coast Guard officer knocked on Elizabeth Friedman's door, he offered her a job, and she eventually accepted. And during her first three months on the job, Elizabeth single-handedly decrypted two years' worth of backlogged messages. Let's just sit with that for a second. This woman burned through years' worth of work like it was nothing. And during her time working on rum runner messages, she looked at about 25,000 intercepts per year. Someone give this woman a raise. That's all I'm saying. But she was doing more than just cracking codes, as if that were a small task. She actually began to take stock of the content of the messages and to figure out things like who owned the ships and where the ships were going to and leaving from, and then who would be meeting the ships when they arrived. Through this information gathering, she was eventually able to instruct government agencies on what organized crime looked like, how they operated, and finally how to stop them. So again, let's get this woman a larger paycheck. By 1931, Elizabeth's work had made such an impact that the government approved her plan to develop an official code-breaking unit. The promotion came with a small raise, yay, and a fancy new title. 
And it was the first unit of its kind to be run by a woman. So while Elizabeth was just, you know, keeping it classy, catching the bad guys and being a boss, she decrypted many messages from a Vancouver syndicate called Consolidated Exporters Corporation, or Conexco for short. So Conexco was the biggest rum-running operation in the world at that time, and they even supplied liquor to Al Capone. The U.S. government indicted Conexco's top leaders, including Al Capone's brother, and Elizabeth was asked to testify as an expert witness. The trial took place in New Orleans, and when Elizabeth arrived, she unknowingly had a plainclothes security detail assigned to her. As I'm sure it's easy to imagine, crime syndicates wouldn't have been particularly excited about anyone who spoke out against them, and the government didn't want to take any chances with their expert witness. When Elizabeth took the stand, she tried to explain how she had deciphered the incriminating messages, but the defending attorney's strategy was to do everything in their power to discredit Elizabeth and keep her from speaking. They interrupted her, asked that her testimony be stricken from the record, and stated that Elizabeth hadn't actually known what the messages had said, but that she had just been guessing. When she'd had enough, Elizabeth turned to a judge and asked if she could have a blackboard. And this is when she literally schooled everyone in that room on code breaking. First, she read a sample message she brought with her for the trial. The decoded message said, Out of Old Colonel in Pints. This message refers to a brand of whiskey called Old Colonel. The original message was written using a substitution cipher, so each letter was replaced with another. And she demonstrated how using frequency analysis, so knowing which letters occur most frequently in a given language, she identified the most commonly used letters in the cipher and eventually came to the true meaning. Once Elizabeth finished her demonstration, the defense attorneys were at a loss. The case was essentially closed at that point, and all of the defendants were found guilty and sentenced to long terms in prison. Mic drop. Following the trial, Elizabeth received a lot of press attention, which she didn't particularly like. She hadn't ever sought out the spotlight, and the press attention was mostly concentrated on what she wore and how she looked, and by the late 1930s, she was the most famous codebreaker in the world. Prohibition was ultimately repealed in 1933, but that didn't mean that Elizabeth's work with organized crime came to an end. The business of black market liquor essentially dried up, so organized crime syndicates looked for new forbidden fruit to deal in. They ended up applying their smuggling skills to opium and drugs derived from it, like heroin and morphine. And so Elizabeth continued following their movements and decrypting their messages. Ultimately, Elizabeth dedicated her life to breaking codes, and she was exceptional at it. And she, a brilliant but underpaid woman, no, I will not let it go, built the foundation that U.S. intelligence agencies sit on today. Elizabeth's work as a leader and analytical genius faded into the background when she retired after decades in government service. William's work has been heralded for decades, and books and manuals about code-breaking that Elizabeth and William worked on together are still seen as fundamental works in the field. William received recognition and awards. All the while, Elizabeth's equally important work went unsung for many years. But now that Elizabeth's contributions have come out of the shadows, we can look up to and appreciate her for the innovative, trailblazing leader that she was. And now, it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. 
The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. My favorite read about Elizabeth Friedman is a book called The Woman Who Smashed Codes by Jason Fagone. Fagone spent years researching Elizabeth's life and dug deep into her personal papers to bring to light an extraordinary woman who lived a fascinating life. If you're interested in a well-written and personal portrait of Elizabeth Friedman, I would wholeheartedly recommend The Woman Who Smashed Codes. But don't worry, Elizabeth's story doesn't end here. She followed the smugglers through the 1930s until the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941 changed everything. Suddenly, thousands of women would flood into Washington, D.C. to quietly take jobs for the government. And if anyone asked, they said they were emptying trash cans and sharpening pencils. But these women were code breakers. And like Elizabeth, they would be hunting for Nazis. Thanks so much for listening to the first part of this code-breaking series. Please tune in to the next episode to hear more about Elizabeth Friedman's incredible hunt for Nazi spies during World War II, as well as the thousands of women who secretly broke Japanese and German codes. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.